Today on the Blocking Charge Cast. Well, the tourney's just begun. Nine Big Ten teams in, but tell me who has won. Sunday, bloody Sunday. This week on the Blocking Charge Cast. Your source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle, Empire. Welcome back to the Blocking Charge Cast, which represents a conference in the Big Ten that still has two teams in the tournament, mostly because we put nine in the tournament. We're affiliated with Off with Off Tackle Empire, uh, one of the one of the last remnants of the uh, early 2010s college sports internet, and. Uh, we never say our fan in affiliations that much, but uh, I am an Illinois fan, and I am Thumpasaurus, a.k.a. Steve Braun, and I am an Illinois fan recording the day after we've lost to Kelvin Sampson in the tournament. So I'm going to pour myself a Malort on the ice because I'm that bitter. Yeah, and normally following a loss to Coach K in the tournament, especially in his last season, I also, being the Michigan State fan on the podcast, would join you, but... It was probably the best game they played this season. You could make that argument <laughs> other than the, maybe the regular season win over Purdue. Uh, it was about an A effort, if not an A plus. Like that's just as good as this team's capable of being. And it wasn't good enough. Duke had better dudes. Real bummer. <laughs> but here we are. So I'm Andrew Krzyzewski. That was Thumbasaurus opening us up. We're joined also here by Buff Komodo, our Indiana correspondent. I, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a house money argument there when you're sweating out making the tournament at all. You do win in the first four, the play-in or whatever you prefer to call it. So how are you feeling sitting here after elimination weekend buff? Oh, much like Indiana. I'm just happy to be here with you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, there's, there's no universe where Indiana gets in the tournament and Illinois advances to the Sweet 16 because... (laughs) Well, I'm not. I'm really not that upset about the game yesterday as much as I am freshly upset about the Loyola game after what happened yesterday. So, we're not joined by any analysts from either of the two teams that are still alive. Yeah, I mean, make of that what you will. Um, so, speaking of the two teams that did make it to the Sweet 16, would be Michigan and Purdue. Of course, the Wolverines did not deserve to be in the field at all, and don't forget that results in the tournament do not speak to whether you belonged in the field. Uh, they were then gifted with a matchup against the mid-major as their six in the first round, and they got the weakest three seed in the field in Tennessee. So here they are in the second weekend of the tournament. Funny how that goes. Um, I guess, though, that the alternative to Michigan making the field would have been um, self-publicizing piss baby Buzz Williams and Texas A&M. So honestly, it's just as well that they're in. Um, in their first couple matchups, I mean, the Colorado State game to me was, I mean, really an impressive in-game coaching job. They fell behind by 15 late in the first half, um, stabilized things enough to tighten it up by halftime. Colorado State had no answer for Hunter Dickinson. So that, I mean, that's really the story of most tournament games is that the team who has the best player, usually in a single elimination format, that ends up being the win. So they played that game, of course, without Devontae Jones, who missed the first round with a concussion, suffered in practice midweek. I have an idea about whose elbow he probably caught in the head, given the way certain guys on that team play. But who knows? We weren't there for practice, so we're not going to be sure. Jones was able to return for their round of 32 game with Tennessee, uh, but then injured himself again. And so they had to get big minutes in both of their games from Frankie Collins, a freshman point guard who has mostly looked like an unprepared disaster this year when he's had to play. But to his credit, again, was uh, very much not afraid of the moment when they needed him this weekend. I'm going to circle back to Buzz Williams because uh, oh yeah, I, I, I heard – a similar complaint echoed this weekend by a Virginia Tech woman swimmer about the uh, about the uh, about Leah Thomas in the swimming finals, claiming that she had stolen her spot in this in the you know the sixteen uh, heat thing. Where it's like, well, there's also fifteen other girls that you didn't beat. Uh, maybe just <laughs> beat one of them. Also, you're 25. <laughs> like you weren't gonna win it all. 
there's a lot of other people that you could have beaten. Right. And that's like, there's, there's always some controversy about this every year, but it's like in the lifetime of plenty of fans, this, the field has already expanded dramatically. It's, you know, went from 64 to 68. A few years ago, I was a big proponent of expanding the field to 96 just so that Northwestern will never have made a 64 team tournament. Like I mean, just for that reason alone. That's also the kind of thing that only guys like you keep track of, though. So I am a tremendously uh, petty sports fan. You know this. Yeah, I would love to see 96 teams in the field. Give me another day of drinking. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I mean, then you're just you're what playing first games on like I it would just be another week. There's no way to line it up otherwise without playing three or four games in eight days or something. Yeah, there, there's so no way that they would make an important uh, college basketball game happen on a Monday, right? No, that would be ridiculous. I mean, any kind of important sporting event on a Monday is just forfeiting a huge part of your audience who isn't going to be able to stay up to watch it. <laughs> who would do that? What a stupid decision. So anyway, yeah, Michigan showed why really the 11 seed is the way to go. And I really hope that my team aims for an 11 seed because, you know, like we had such a tough draw as a one seed and a four seed that, uh, you know, I, I think we just really need to tank for tournament position. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly if Michigan state had just boxed out on a free throw against UCLA last year, we would have been the ones who went to the final four. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> that's how that works. Right. Um, so Michigan through to the second weekend of the tournament, their matchup is the two seed Villanova. Who not exactly. A, we'll get to that. Yeah, not not a vintage Villanova team, but they do have kind of the prototype tournament guard in Colin Gillespie. So figures to be a tough matchup. Uh, hold on, I have to check and see. I did not pull up betting lines, but it's also a little bit early. That game is going to be Thursday night. And then if they were to prevail in that game, they would get the winner of Arizona Houston in the Elite Eight for the right to go to New Orleans for the Final Four. Um, I would probably favor Villanova to win that game, but again, in a single elimination game, a player that can make an impact like Connor Dickinson is a difficult thing to match up against. Um, I don't think Villanova has any of those guys like um, like Pascal or oh, the guy who they they sent two guys to the Warriors in quick succession when they had those two turn those two national title teams. There was. Pascal and who was the other guy? I sure don't remember. But anyway, I'm not aware of a post presence like that in Villanova right now. So I don't think they're quite the strength that they were before. But again, it, you know, Jay Wright in the tournament is usually a reasonably safe bet. Well, it's interesting because Jay Wright uh, had about five straight years where Villanova was a very reliable round of 32 exit and was just seen as well. <laughs> This is just a guy that's never get it gonna get it done, you know, just gonna keep choking all the time. That's what he is, just a guy that chokes in March. Well, you know, the best way to counter that narrative is to keep going to the tournament, which and to find Jalen Brunson. Yeah, and uh, to find Jalen Brunson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's sure. You you can't break through in the tournament if you're not there every year. So that that does have to be said. Has to be said. Um Big Ten's other uh remaining combatant the Purdue Boilermakers had no trouble at all with Yale in the first round just overwhelming size and physicality versus an Ivy League team and then despite relentless bitching from the Boilermakers were exposed to about being paired in the same region with Chris Beard again um, they put down Texas by casually deploying Travion Williams their six foot ten senior backup post-scoring stud who I would guess probably has at least 1500 career points. Um, so yeah, it just, just woe is Purdue getting put in a region with big, bad Texas and Chris Beard's first season there as they, I mean, they retooled quickly, but still a retooling job. So it was next- crazy, crazy, crazy stuff happened in that game. Like Purdue going on a 20, nothing run in the first half and then being like tied at halftime somehow. Yeah, and again, so understandable that it's not necessarily – you don't want to see Chris Beard in the first weekend if you can avoid it. I understand that. But it's also the tournament, 
uh, you're going to play a good team at some point, you know, like there's no, there's no, nobody other than Michigan gets a true free pass the second weekend for the most part. So, um, and uh, the other thing that happened in that game was it was a 71 point tie late in the game. And uh, you know, for, for, for any, I get that there are people that like don't have a team that just root for the tournament, right? Like Rob Lowe, um, you know, sitting in the hat with an NCAA (laughs) and I probably really enjoyed, you know, Jade and Ivy taking over and splashing some clutch shots, but I'm sitting there. I don't really hate Purdue all that much. I'm just thinking like, Oh, cool. This is like what I thought Io DeSumo was going to be doing in in the tournament. Oh, this hurts so much. I'm going to pour myself a Malorton tonic right now. That's a thing. Well, you know what? It is now. Okay. Uh, I'm still not going to have consumed as much Malort as I did in the immediate aftermath of the Loyola game in one go. But uh, I guess before we move on completely, I want to mention one of my favorite things I saw that happened in the Arizona TCU game, which was at the end of regulation. Have you guys played NBA Jam? Of course. I'm 30-something. Absolutely. Of course. So (laughs) did you ever make the mistake of going up for a dunk with under five seconds to go on the clock? Because it always takes you about five seconds to go all the way up and come all the way down and then get stuck in the air when the when the little when horn the, blows because the guy fire, goes, so bad you. decision. <laughs> Arizona literally did that at the end of regulation in a tie game. Their guy just went up for a dunk. <laughs> the only thing is he didn't actually physically freeze in the air, but. I laughed my ass off when I saw that because I've never seen that happen outside of NBA Jam before. Oh, you took too long to dunk it. (sighs) So before we move on, though, Purdue, their matchup the rest of the way, they happen to be in the sub-region with um, probably darling of the tournament so far. That would be the 15-seed St. Peter's, having already taken the axe to the head of Kentucky and Murray State. So Purdue is now in kind of an enviable position. I mean, despite being a pretty consistent top five, top eight type of team in the rankings all year and having all a lot of really difficult matchups, it didn't feel like they were really getting a whole lot of chatter as a deep run possibility. I think a lot of people had them losing to Texas. And now they play a 15 seed in the Sweet 16, where if you lose, yeah, it's infuriating for you. But because they've already beaten a higher seed than you, nobody, uh, I mean, other than perhaps you, Buff, is going to spend a whole lot of energy laughing at Purdue when it's like, oh, you're just, you're just Cinderella collateral damage. Like, that's going to happen. Um, nobody's, even if you are obviously the better team, if they find a way to beat you, it's, just, it's more about them than it is about you. At so this point, I only want Purdue to continue to advance until Michigan falls because I don't want Michigan to be the last big 10 team left so of course you know like nobody keeps track of that though it's just how far you made it saint peter's saint peter's though um i mean i already owe them a great debt of gratitude because you know kentucky went and they stole our and all of our assistant coaches and then lost to a 15 seed with them well they may just have to come back to the to the store and buy up kofi coburn too and see if that helps i mean buying west virginia's best player wasn't good enough so buying the best player from a better team. Uh, maybe that's the key for him next season. You, you do feel for coach Cal, just so deprived of resources, uh, not having uh, the best players from two power five teams join him as mercenaries this year. So anyway, um, at least I get, at least I get two weekends of teams that I don't like losing. Uh, most likely I get UK last weekend and I'll get probably Purdue when they lose to UCLA. It's a distinct possibility that, as you mentioned, if they prevail against St. Peter's, they would get the winner of UCLA, North Carolina. Um, the Tar Heels took down Baylor, so one of the one seeds falls. And I mean, even that being said, despite the one in their region, at the one and the two having lost in the first weekend, um, Purdue does still have plenty of difficult teams left to play. I mean, whoever they get in that Elite Eight matchup, if they win, you've either got a veteran, like the most experienced tournament team remaining in UCLA, or you get a team in UNC that always has a top end talent. And they reminded you of that against Baylor, where for long stretches, they look like the more athletic team against Baylor. So either way, um, still probably the best case scenario to, to face a 15 
in the round of 16 when you have a seven foot four guy that'll help and that kind of brings us now so we're what 10 12 minutes in here and we've talked about the entirety of the remaining big 10 fields so now we have to turn and march to the long procession of the fallen um i did these in not exactly chronological order uh, so we'll just run through these one at a time um, as my Husky, my R2 just despondent that UConn once again ate shit in the first round. Um, so he's been salty. He has once again picked up a squeaky toy as we're here recording. I swear he knows what we're doing. And all of these losses were painful for unique reasons too. Yeah. Um, they, 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 they were just an extra knife twist in all of these. Yeah, Rutgers, one of the very first losses of the tournament. If you look at the box score initially and you're like, oh my God, how did they get into a high 80s shootout with Notre Dame? Well, hang on, two two overtime sessions is how that happened. And this um, the is game. the key because that second overtime meant the game went after midnight, which meant that it was now St. Patrick's Day on the East Coast. Which meant that the story was written. It was too easy. Um, whoever it is that makes that decision at NCAA headquarters wired in to the tiny earpiece and the head ref and said, you know what you have to do. And then it was just decided after that, fortunately Notre Dame lost. So we don't have to hear about that anymore. Uh, but yeah, it, in a tip in at the last second by Paul Atkinson, who man, you know, considering Rutgers has this reputation as just an invincible defensive team that you can't possibly penetrate on the interior. Atkinson ate Cliff Omarui's lunch all game. Uh, 13 for 15 from the field. R2, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> so you're saying that that he squeaks Omarui around like a toy. He did, and I'm going to take the slot, yeah. So, Man. and the twist of the knife here for Rutgers is, of course, being the other team in the uh, St. Patrick's Day, Notre Dame, it's a fighting Irish thing, you know, storyline, but also... Losing to a guy who once openly suggested that the best thing to do was to euthanize the Rutgers basketball program. Yeah, well, you know. Um, fortunately, we found out today that Maryland will not be stuck with Mike Bray by virtue of Notre Dame winning two games in the tournament. Instead, they're going to hire Seton Hall's Kevin Willard. Um, I didn't see a better time to bring that up because I didn't do much research yet on Willard other than knowing Seton Hall's generally in the tournament. They generally lose pretty early. <laughs> so... They fly into Champaign. Willard will coach Willard will be flying into Willard, <laughs> the, the airport. I didn't. I would never have guessed there's an airport in Champaign, but all right. There are there are four gates, and when I went to it, the 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 um the security was closed because the guard was taking a break. <laughs> <laughs> I had to wait ten minutes for them to come back. <laughs> His security is closed right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just. <laughs> oh man, it's just got like yeah. It's the kind of thing that you just would not imagine as being a real possibility. Which um, of the four gates did I go to? Well, I met. Yeah, I, like right. I, I stood at one gate and I could see all of the <laughs> other gates in the airport. I well, yeah. So when we were fly- we were on our way back for our honeymoon, or at least on our way back to the mainland, we we're leaving the Galapagos Islands. There. Are two airports out there but they're both like two gates each i think and so we're at the airport it's just this one small hangar building and we're sitting there waiting like our plane lands we're watching people do planes so we're sitting there waiting and this older guy um is like looking at like kind of walks over towards where we are like looking at his ticket and he like looks up and again the two gates are basically just two doors on the same wall, like 20 feet away from each other. There's one desk in between them. Um, but this guy like looks at his ticket and he's like looking up between and it's like one, two over the two. And they didn't bother designating a gate on the ticket because there's one plane leaving <laughs> for like six hours in either direction. Gate, you'll know it when you see it. Yeah. Well, but he's so he and he's looking really concerned. Like he's getting more and more concerned, looking like just studying his ticket and looking up at the gate. And he just kind of looks around. There's nobody from the airline there, at least not yet. So he looks around and he looks at us. Um, and he sees we're both sitting there holding tickets. And he look and he says, What do you know which gate it is? And I just I kind of just look at him. 
And I like look past him at the one plane on the one runway. And I'm I just like, I dude, I, I don't think it matters. <laughs> the, the one with the one with the plane, just go to the plane. Yeah. Just Where, wherever plane. somebody rolls up and starts looking at your tickets, man. Like I, how could you possibly think that you're not gonna find the right gate right now? <laughs> so anyway, it just that that made me think of that. So yeah, so the Willard long. thing does prevent a little bit of a serious coaching beef in the big in the Big Ten because my brave Rutgers beef would have been tremendous. Yeah, but I'll tell you, man, I remember when this first game, I, maybe it was DJ who mentioned that the rumor was they were going to take a crack at Bruce Pearl. I mean, you talk oh, about... Oh, boy! Well, I, I don't think that was ever serious because really, like, he's got a top five team at a school that will let him cheat as much as he wants. Um, I don't know why he would leave. I guess you could say, oh, he'd have proximity to the D.C. area talent. Okay, I mean... I think he recruits nationally. I, I don't think that matters. Well, the question is, will Maryland also let him murder? Well, that I think is a line that has has been shown they won't let you cross. Yeah, see, so. that's that's the problem. So you got to think of things they could actually attract him with. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that he couldn't coach at Notre Dame, but still, um, Iowa. We know, yeah. Speaking of uh, a team that just murders its own hopes, so... Iowa here was a little bit of a case study in dying by the three as opposed to living by the three. Um, nobody other than Patrick McCaffrey or Keegan Murray got off the bus on offense for Iowa, which is kind of an unusual, like usually if you think of, all right, why are they going to lose the tournament? It'll be because, well, yeah, they'll score, but they'll give up 95. No, what happened here is again, they had a good shooting game for McCaffrey. Keegan Murray got his points, but he definitely needed a lot of shots to get there. And it didn't, nobody else, man, Bohannon, um, Connor McCaffrey, Sanford, none of those guys did anything. Do you um, happen to he, recall what I said about Iowa on our last podcast? What, you've, what all the talk around them reminded me of? You've lodged many complaints about Iowa on the podcast. You'll have to be more specific. Oh, no. I remember saying a lot how much all the talk around Iowa going into the tournament reminded me of how people were talking about Illinois last year. Like they got real hot down the stretch. They've got this generational player averaging like 20 and whatever. Um, you know, they won the big 10 tournament. It validates all the stuff, you know, they didn't get the regular season title, but that big 10 tournament really validates them. And now, you know, they're for sure. They're the guy that the guys that everybody's picking in their final four, that's for sure going to happen. It's like, well, what if it doesn't? Yes. Because- well, the thing, the thing that really did it for me and made me convinced they were not making it for the second weekend. I didn't think they were going to lose in the first game, but I did have them losing uh, before the weekend was up. Was that uh, all of the Detroit sports media was talking about them as Final Four picks, possibly winning it all? I was like, oh, well, they're doomed now. Uh, the morning show on the, on the sports radio station here anointed them as a team they wanted to keep an eye on. I was like, oh yeah, they're not a chance, not a chance. They've been that's the kiss. That's that's worse than a quarterback or a receiver this past season being picked by me for college fantasy. Like that that's is, even worse than. And he's made twenty eight of his last twenty eight <laughs> from the free throw stretch, and then it just airballs the free. Like there's yeah. Not a chance. He hasn't missed a field goal kick in two years. (laughs) So for how many seasons in a row now, we're having the same conversation about Iowa at the end of the season where the question becomes, is this good enough? Um, It seems to be. I don't think their fan base is really on the verge of a revolution. Um, You know, even last year, they had not won anything, not won anything at all, but they had just gotten to watch Luca Garza for two years. They do play, for the most part, a hugely entertaining brand of basketball. The thing is that brand of basketball is really susceptible to off-shooting nights, and when that happens, they certainly do not seem to have an answer, and that's what we've seen in the NCAA tournament for a few years running now. I'm going to plug my ears so I can't hear myself say this. Credit to Iowa for actually hanging a banner. It's a single elimination tournament, so you can't necessarily take anything, but it does mean something that they hung a banner. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's why, you know, I think the uh, 
I think the, is this good enough question is easier to answer in the affirmative and that they did finally get a banner out of this because the Garza era, they didn't have one, but now here with Keegan Murray, they are, there is something that will tangibly remind them other than maybe if they retire his Jersey. Um, now the interesting right. thing is Richmond, not a particularly good offensive team. Like basically in all the stats that you can look up about Richmond, they were pretty, you know, I mean, they were good, but not, you know, nothing stood out about them except for one. They're top 10 in the country in defending three-point three attempts. Three-point defense. Yep. And it, like, so if, if there's anything that Iowa doesn't want to see in the first game of the tournament, that would have been it. And that all true. And it, look, I, I still think that three-point defense has some amount of randomness to it, but you can certainly impact it with a philosophical commitment to it. <clears throat> and you know the, the fact that Iowa didn't find ways to get inside to Abracha more, didn't post up Keegan or Chris Murray more on the inside, and opted to sell for as many threes as they did, I think is just kind of indicative of their philosophy that they're not <clears throat> going to try to change midstream. Hopefully, my voice is able to hold up. We are, of course, barely 48 hours from the first DCFC game of the season, so I'm still on the road to recovery, uh, hanging on by a thread here. Well, it didn't help that I you know, what recovery I made was greatly interrupted by a certain foul call in my team's game, which caused me to uh, do a lot of screaming. But I, hey, here's a fun thing right now. Who do we think is mostly responsible for the fact that KenPom.com is currently down? Like, who do we think has overloaded the site looking for team data? Hmm. We don't know any Johnny Come Lately fan bases that would be interested at this time of year do we no that can't be oh what's uh, the one thing that's funny is that my neighbor a couple houses down decided that now was the time to finally bring out the unc flag after the first week of the tournament i've never seen this flag before but i guess i guess now for him basketball season has started Oh, yeah, I am a fan of that team now that they made it past the toughest team in their bracket. Let me put that up. It, the, t- so here's my question. Does it appear to be a new flag? It looks pretty new. Mm, that might be a paintballing. I don't know. We'll, we'll leave that up to our listeners to be jury on that. So we're going to get Buff Komodo back in the conversation here, having effectively crowded him out by talking about Iowa for a long time. Um, Indiana Hoosiers, of course, did make the tournament. They prevail in their first four matchup with Wyoming and then oh, oh. totally ran out. They used all their points, though. They had to use all the points they had left to, to get past Wyoming, and then St. Mary's ran them off the floor. Uh, Buff Komodo, tell us your thoughts on those two games oh. and kind of where you are, big picture here, having had a couple days to digest it. Uh, that Tuesday night. Me and dad went up to uh, Dayton to go watch. And I will have to say that was the most painful six hours of basketball I think I've ever watched. Uh, <laughs> but watching those two games, I'm not even saying like they were just like bad players or anything, but just holy cow, I don't know if it was the ball. All four teams shot below 40% mostly for the games. I mean, I, I have no idea how Indiana won. Uh, it was only because Wyoming just kept turning the ball over. And, yeah, it's great to see Indiana get a March win, though. Uh, three March wins, actually, to include the Big Ten tournament. Yeah. Well, as, so, far I mean, as, as far as the St. Mary's game, you know, <clears throat> if you really go dive into Indiana Twitter, you'll see that the, 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 the tournament committee really kind of tried to give Indiana the old shiv and – fly them out directly from Dayton to Portland where they would face a St. Mary's team who was already on the West coast. Um, <laughs> on top of that, they screwed up the flight arrangements. So Indiana's flight got delayed from one in the morning to four in the morning oh where they didn't God. land until 6 AM West coast time. Um, the day before they were supposed to play a game. So that's not the only reason they lost. They lost because they played five games in seven days and played five games pretty decently, um, except for the St. Mary's game. But as Damn, far as... 
if I had known all this stuff, I would have taken I would have hammered the St. Mary's money line. But anyway, you definitely should have done that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I will. I'll put it. In, I'll put it in the slack next time. As far as reflection on the season and reflection on the last seven days, that that really kind of changed the trajectory of Indiana's offseason. It, it goes from a team that just completely underachieved by, again, being the only NCAA or being the only Big Ten tournament team. I'm sorry, being the only Big Ten team that hasn't had a winning record since 2017. It continued that streak. But they were able to snap their NCAA tournament list streak by winning. And so just the place that you're in by being in the tournament and not being in the NIT, I think, helps. You know, you talk to a lot of Indiana fans. They say that the goal this year was to get into the tournament. Well, that's mission accomplished. But the problem is you don't know what's going to happen in the offseason with the transfer portal. Who's going to leave? Who's going to stay? And as wonderful as he played in these past five games, I'm just not certain that you can build a team around Trace Jackson Davis. I think certainly he's a great piece, but I don't think he's – if he's not, if he's not going to at least try to shoot two or three shots outside of 15 feet, you've just got to use him in pick and rolls and dive into the basket. You can't give him face-up opportunities because he's just going to throw it at the basket, especially against bigger bigs. Counterpoint. So counterpoint. Yeah. Kofi Coburn had a game where he attempted a couple of fifteen footers. He had one game where he did that. <laughs> There's a reason. For Kofi that. Coburn is also a larger person than Trace Jackson Davis. That is true. He and is a larger man handled him in Assembly Hall. But in general, for a lot of what you were talking about, about how like you know the first part of just your season retrospective, all I could hear you saying was. I owe you a beer, Thumposaurus. I owe you a beer, Thumposaurus. I owe you a beer, Thumposaurus. I do. I do. Thank <laughs> you for allowing us to get in the NCAA tournament. We greatly appreciate it. Th- thank Frazier for throwing the ball out of bounds, too. That was really, really helpful. Well, and Kofi for not really seeming to realize that Chase Jackson Davis was about to hit the spin. That's the only move he's got. <laughs> yep. He's got a spin. Drive and, go <laughs> drive and go left. Drive and go left. He doesn't have a right hand. Trace, no go. Trace, no go right. Trace, go left. <laughs> and now we're going to go left into the end of the Wisconsin can't keep getting away with this story because, uh, boy, oh did the shooting variance bill come due for the Badgers. I guess you could call it that. It also, though, these two tournament games were very much the most Wisconsin tournament games you could come up with, right? Um, they they hit just enough of a hot streak themselves against Colgate to avoid an upset, an upset from a team that for a while just couldn't miss, but they, they made just enough of their own bullshit shots that they were able to pull away at the end. And then, man, I... We've, we've kind of been like hinting, I'll see, like I haven't said it directly because my team fell out of the conference race. You, I think, may have pointed out once or twice that uh, they have one great player and two good ones and nobody else. They have a five-man rotation. Yeah, yeah, they don't have – and we saw that. I mean, I understand that having your starting point guard get hurt mid-game is a big problem. But if your starting point guard is a true freshman that you're relying on to that extent, you don't have anybody else who can bring the ball up and make this go a little bit when you've got the conference, the unanimous conference player of the year. The guy's probably going to go in the lottery. Uh, and you still have Tyler Wall, who is an above average power forward in this league. I, it just that they don't have anything else from anybody. Uh, they just redefined offensive basketball in every sense of the word. And now, I mean, if you, so if you're Wisconsin, yeah, you got the conference tournament somehow again in, in the, how do they keep getting away with this sort of fashion that you mentioned, but man, if Johnny Davis leaves and how would he not, he's going to be a lottery pick. He has nothing else to prove. What is this team going to be next year? Cause Davison's out of eligibility. This team's going to be Chucky wall. They're going to be Chucky Hepburn and Tyler wall. And all and these other dudes are not Crow. very good. <laughs> Right, who I don't think would start at the five for any other team in the league. To be fair, uh, I thought Wisconsin was going to be crap this year, though. I I did I did too. I didn't really I didn't see them <laughs> contending for the conference title at least. Um, but I also Andrew, thought, don't I you realize what's happened? 
we've fallen into the same trap we did with Wisconsin football. The only way to make them not that good is to proclaim that they're going undefeated this year. This is going to be the year they really put it together and take it to the next level. Every time we've said Wisconsin football was going to fall off, they win the division. It was only the year that we said, oh, but they're going to be even better this year, that they finally fell off a little bit. And they got beat by Indiana that year, too. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yep. Like I said, fell off. Yeah, I I just... uh... I don't know, man. It, it's a true marvel uh, that I'm going to put in the back of my head and hopefully never think about again. All right, we put it off long enough. Um, Steve, your line, I pulled off an absolute Houdini act against Chattanooga, a game that really, it's not like Chattanooga played all that great, such that it was an injustice that Illinois won. Uh, but boy, you really looked like you were going to find a way to, to fumble that away for a while there. Um, but didn't pull it out. And again, lots of close games in the tournament. And then had a terrible matchup and what's probably going to end up looking like a very underseeded Houston team. Well, I mean, you know, we, we can't, the problem is that we didn't do like last year. We didn't do enough in the regular season to avoid getting a top 10 team in, you know, several predictive models in the round of 32. I mean, last year, you know, we barely did anything of note last year as Michigan fans keep saying, all we did was beat Michigan, you know, so we only got a one seed and, you know, so we still had to play a, uh, you know, a top 10 team. This time we got to play a top five team uh, in, in Houston. That was a bad matchup for us. But of course we were going to have to at some point play a good team, right? The problem is that we were playing in the big 10 this year. So we didn't have, we weren't very prepared to play a great team because there just fucking aren't any um, in this league. But ultimately what I saw was just uh Two things. One, the fatal flaw of this team that, you know, really made it hard to believe in their ability to put together a deep run, which was averaging about 15 turnovers a game. Houston schemed to exploit that. Uh, I, I mean, I think that they naturally that like that's been what they try to do all along, but they they just completely um, magnified that flaw for the Illini. Got seven turnovers off of inbounds plays. Um, two, I think with. Jacob Grandison's injury. I mean, he played some of the game, but he couldn't, he couldn't lift his arm above his head. So I don't even know why he went in. Um, yeah. The extent, the extent to which Underwood went to a shorter bench, I think maybe as he was reaching, trying to get that conference championship kind of opted to cut some of the younger guys like Goody and Melendez out of the rotation. And that, that lack of depth really ended up hurting Illinois. Nah, when... I disagree with that. He never really got them very much tick in the rotation. They kept, especially Melendez would, would have a stretch of incredible minutes. And I'd be thinking, okay, well, so the next game we're going to see some more of him. And then just, no, it doesn't happen. I don't, That's I don't what know. I mean, at least somewhat early in the season, they would play a bit. And then later towards the end of the season, I do not recall seeing those guys. So yeah, traditionally that's how that works though. You get, you know, at the beginning of the year, you may have a roster rotation of nine guys and this is old school coaching. This isn't Mike Woodson. Go ahead and sub five guys in five guys out. Yeah. No, Um, I was going to say, I, I I would usually start with, I don't know what you're talking about. I, it's normal to play 10 guys. Yeah. But you used to, (laughs) you used to have your rotation of your nine guys at the beginning of the season and then whittled down to about six to seven guys by the end of the year to where those eight, nine guys, they're only going in foul trouble. I mean, so I don't find that to be too big of an issue. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that to me was always the biggest reason why bad modest teams never went as deep in the tournament as they should have given their talent levels. But um, anyhow, the the game was still within reach for, I mean, I, I said at several points during the game, man, this is a winnable game. They started off just shooting terribly. Um, but played pretty shrewd defense. And in the second half, it, just, it looked like a winnable game. Uh, Plummer was hitting threes. Frazier shot. Tra- Frazier missed his first six three-point attempts. He had such a bad pace, case of pink eye that I guess he was, like, starting to lose blood by the end of it. Um, it was an unfortunate way for him to go out. There was a lot of just unfortunately timed things that that happened. And like I said, the, the Grandison injury just kind of meant that um, – rotation that Underwood went with down the stretch to secure the big 10 title just couldn't happen because it happened in the last game of the season. Um, But ultimately I think they finally just got, uh, 
a combination of, of frustration and then just some fatigue from heavy usage on the part of everybody, but Kofi Coburn um, meant that in the, in the second half, uh, late in the second half, they just couldn't stop Jamal shed from getting in the lane and hitting floater after floater after floater. Um, yeah. Between the, well, and, and on the other end of the court, I mean, between the big 10 tournament elimination game, the two games, of the tournament, Illinois scored 63, 53 and 54 points. Um, and when you've got an absolute unguardable anchor like Coburn in the middle, you have a creative lead guard in Corbello, a couple of wings. And again, I know that Williams and Frazier both hit bad shooting skids towards the end of the year. Um, but still, like it, that that's the offensive output you're coming up with with the turnover volume that you've mentioned. Um, now, and, Underwood's, and- Underwood's a coach that he makes his adjustments in the offseason, right? Once you start the season, it's like, all right, well, you know, because we've he's installed new defenses and offenses, but that's kind of what he's going to run all season. The only thing he'll adjust is rotations. So I can only really criticize him for what he maybe could have done differently. And I like I hate to say it in his last game, but man, Devontae Williams should probably not have played very much of this game. Uh, Curbelo, I guess the combination of his play and antics earned him a permanent seat in the second half. Uh, which was a bizarre thing, but meant that we really had to rely on Trent Frazier, um, who just didn't display the same kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it was fatigue or he just didn't display the same kind of fearlessness. Uh, RJ Melendez came in and was very hot for the line. I gave him a big spark, him and Luke Goody. But uh, Melendez's momentum was abruptly shut down by the worst foul call I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, so after finishing a dunk with a, a full head of steam, tons of momentum, Melendez did the thing that a lot of players do in that situation, which I think most of them are taught to do, which is, yes, hang, stay on the rim, rock back until you're able to safely land so that you don't break your back like Evan Turner did or destroy your arm like Paul George did crashing into the stanchion. Um, Melendez was then teed up for it to the incredulity of the broadcast, certainly the entire Illinois, like it was the Reggie was Miller. Thing. Couldn't believe it. Connor yeah. McCaffrey sent a tweet. Like this is the worst foul call I've ever seen. They Didn't showed this from Iowa. Yeah. They showed this tight shot of RJ Melendez looking like the saddest puppy in the world, unable to believe what had just happened. And that cut it to a four point game. And uh, I mean, after that, Illinois did go on a little run to get it to within one but i think melendez specifically was shaken by that because it just it just took him out of a groove and uh yeah and after that that was just where everything just kind of you know fell apart because i mean it really was the turnover thing that was our biggest flaw and also something that houston was in position to capitalize on and you know by the time we'd spent all game inbounding to the corner and then getting trapped and trying to find you know our way around and Kofi had been frustrated because he'd get a post feed and then there would be nobody on his side for him to pass out to. And all that stuff just kind of added up to where, where our, our interior defense fell apart at the, in the last five minutes. Um, Yeah. But you know, I will, and we've talked about, we talked about this after the selection show, given some of the ridiculous um, storylines, the selection committee contrived. Uh, it does feel like they are they're running through all the possible pranks for your program, right? I mean, there was Loyola last year. Um, they gave you a replay of Chattanooga in the first round, and then um, Kelvin Sampson in the second round. So yeah, they're um, saving their biggest punch. They're saving their biggest punch. They're waiting for us to get for for us to you know get another real high seat or something like that. Or oh yeah, the, or- the next time the next time you're a one seed, Auburn will be an eight in your region. It won't matter if they've if they're undefeated at that point. That's- because I was I was talking about like. Hey, we don't know that we wouldn't have had a great data point for the tournament in 20, you know, 2019-20. But then I realized, no, we would have gotten a five seed and then been eliminated by OB Toppin Dayton, who was a 12 seed for some fucking reason. <laughs> yeah. I, anyway, I, I'm gonna crack one of my leftover spotted cows that I got on the way up to Green Bay to watch them in the playoffs this year. My Malorton tonic was uh, well, actually a pretty balanced drink, but all bitter. <laughs> No, no better time to relive the memory of that particular trip to Lambeau. Um, but speaking of Loyola, uh, when the brackets were revealed, Ohio State losing to Loyola in the first round was a trendy you know, upset pick, and we'll throw air quotes around that. 
Because for one thing, in, in the eight, nine, seven, ten games, like is it really that much of an upset if the 10 wins? I not really. Uh Loyola also vastly more tournament success than Ohio State in the last several years. Still kind of like the last main pieces of their final four team were still on this team. Uh, but man, Loyola absolutely crapped the bed. The worst offensive performance of this tournament. And it's a tournament in which Wisconsin played two games, folks. 41 points from Loyola, from Loyola on a sub 27% shooting performance overall from the field. And Indiana scored more than that. Yeah, yeah, man. And, and Indiana scored more than that after not sleeping the night before it. So like, yeah, it, it absolutely unwatchable game. Ohio state only shot 7% from three point land themselves. Yet another data point that maybe, maybe screwing with the ball that, you know, players have been getting, have been used to for 30 plus games over the course of the season. And then, all right, we've got the biggest stage, the most people watching let's make them play with a different ball so that nobody can score. I believe uh, that it was done intentionally in order to juice upsets uh, to drive it because I think the NCAA is realizing that it's really the first weekend that gets all the ratings and social media engagement is driven by big upsets. So I believe that this was very conveniently timed. I don't believe it personally affected my team that much because like, I don't know, but like, I, I, I think it, it had a lot to do with, uh, with Iowa's struggles, for instance, uh, Again, hate to hear myself say that because I want Iowa to have lost on their own merits, which I think they ultimately did. But it's funny that suddenly teams with, you know, real athletic guards that are balled down and that can take it to the rim, suddenly those guys cannot hit layups off the backboard anymore. Yeah. um, Or just can't dribble it. That happened a lot whenever we were up at the the first four games. Just dudes just losing the dribble. It was crazy. Yeah, well, there was also a little bit of a problem with that in Michigan State's game because the Greenville Arena is played on ice. Um, I I don't know what hockey program is based out of Greenville, South Carolina, but apparently that's the only building in town, so players are slipping all over the place. Um, But anyway, before we get to to that, so Ohio State prevails over Loyola. Again, a a difficult, hard-fought kind of game. They then get the prize of the two-seed Villanova, um, the problem there was Ohio state did not have scoring depth, which has been somewhat of a problem for them at times. They got 40 combined points out of, uh, Branham and Waddell and everybody else on the team combined for 21, um, got minimal contributions from their veterans, guys like Kyle Young and Justin Arns, when they really needed them, did not offer much. And so it's yet another first weekend exit for Chris Holtman, man. Um, when we get to kind of our full season recap, once the tournament's over, we'll revisit this in a little more depth, but man, sooner or later, the questions got to be asked. He's built a team. That's got a lot of talent. They win a lot of games in the regular season. I mean, it's a shame if EJ Liddell is gone because the thing about EJ Liddell is he is right in that sweet spot where he is big enough to bully 80% of the players he faces, but not so big that you don't call fouls against him. Um, right. He shoots so, the ball well from outside too. Yeah, he does. Yeah. I mean, he, he added enough of a face-up dimension to his game that I have to imagine he's going to be sort of a late lottery kind of late, like high teens sort of pick. What? Second no. round. Second round for that man. All right. I don't know shit about the NBA, but, um, I still don't know what my point basically being that he's displayed the dimensions to his game that I think he would make him draftable at least I, second round. I don't know about that. Um, well, I don't know if we have a lot of NBA expertise here, but we do have some OVC expertise here, some Horizon League expertise. Um, we are joined by a late arriving MN Wildcat. Good evening, friends. How are we? Well, well, well. Some of us are better than others. <laughs> uh, now that we're discussing draft prospects, I assume this is where we discuss Pete Nance and his draft profile. I don't is know. That, is it? Is, is that like Larry Nance? Is that is that like that guy? Yeah, just close your eyes, and basically, it's the same thing. Let's not ask too many questions here. Right. Well, you know, we were uh, just briefly mentioning that Chris Holtman once again flaming out in the first weekend of the tournament. Is that maybe eventually a problem, given that relative to the talent and the regular season performance that that's uh, 
kind of a record he's building now of not doing much in the postseason. Um, but this is so the postseason, what happens there, MN Wildcat, is after you're done playing all the games that are like on the schedule at the beginning of the season, there's like uh-huh. a there's like a yeah. second part to it where well, it, you it's like different teams. Like you, it's not teams from the big 10 usually that you would play. It would be like all kinds of like teams from all our conferences. Like there's this big thing. It's Talk a national. It. Well, actually, no, it's a national tournament and it's invitational only. So it's like this national oh, yeah, invitation. Yeah, Bill went to like five of those. Yeah. Bill Carmody was loved the NIT. Great time. It's, 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 it's an invitational. Like it's an invitational for the sport of college basketball. Like it's some, it's like, it's like a college basketball invitational. It's, uh, I didn't put, I should have put together some graphics I could have shared with you and it, it, all of this would have made more sense. But anyway, um, you're, you are just in time because we're just about to talk about your two favorite programs, Michigan state and Duke. So let's get right into it. Uh, <laughs> oh, I got some rope. Let's get her done. Huh, um, <laughs> I got, so before we get to the Duke thing, we'll, uh, so the first round matchup again, we mentioned how at this point um, the NCAA selection committee is basically just seeing how many pranks they can pull on the big 10. And the answer was a lot because they found a way in a seven, 10 matchup to pit an exiled Michigan state player against his former team. Um, and Foster Larry didn't really do much in this game. Um, he, he definitely looked like he was forcing it a little bit. Like there was that you, you could see that, Oh, I'm going to show you guys thing on a couple occasions. I think he ended up with like 11 points or something, which I was sure that he was going to go seven for nine from deep um, as we lost by like five or six points and he would hit the big one, but um, that didn't happen. Mercifully, I will say, you know, we'll, we'll tie into this again in a little bit, but considering how frequently, well, not that this is unusual. I mean, this is kind of a college basketball fan thing, but MSU had some really good foul fortune in the first half against Davidson when Luka Brakovich got called for his second with like 12 minutes left in the first half. And, and then, look, Bob McKillop did it to himself. He threw his best player into the foul dimension in a single elimination game. And basically, it was only because of that that MSU had a halftime lead at, uh, of one point. If Davidson's best player had played, given what he did in the second half, the guy probably would have scored 35. Um, he was the best player on the floor by a mile. And with him on the bench, it turned out that the new best player in the game um, was Joey Hauser. Just miracles never cease i have said on many occasions where would msu be without joey hauser now i am usually saying that with an extremely different inflection (laughs) i was gonna i was curious about that i mean are you prepared to eat crow and admit that you were wrong about joey hauser all this time no, I'm prepared to say that he played the two best games of his MSU career in the last two games, and it was a great time for him to do that. I think if he wants to get his ledger back to square, he owes us about six more games as good as the Davidson one if he comes back next year. He's, he could take the free year in return. Uh, that's the thing. I mean, now that you're staring down the barrel of elimination, there's really no telling what this team will be because – probably their three most disappointing and inconsistent players were their seniors, Hauser and Gabe Brown and Marcus Bingham, but they were all very good in the tournament and kind of showed you what you thought they were going to be this year. And so it's like, if we get those guys, well, yeah, we want them back. But if they're going to be more like what we saw over the long sample of a season, then maybe it's better if they move on. Who's to say? Um, So after they edge out a pretty exciting game back and forth with Davidson, um, all the headlines are set up. They get into the matchup with Duke um, and they play it coming into this. There was really no reasonable blueprint that MSU had to match Duke in the front court. Um, they do not have anybody who can check Paulo Banchero. They do not have anybody who can body up with Mark Williams. And that was the case for pretty much the entire game. Um, MSU hit seven out of 10 threes in the first half and they were still down four points at halftime. They basically played an A quality game. And it's just Duke's guys were better enough that it didn't matter. Uh, they had about MSU had about a five point lead was their high watermark with five minutes left or so, like five fifteen or something like that. And then from there, it it was it's one of those things where you could tell once in a while, Coach K decides like, all right, why don't I just get out of the way and let the best player in the building win the game for me? And that was what happened. Boncaro took over. Um, as good as Joey Hauser was for most of the tournament, 
Boncaro just ate his lunch. Um, first of all, blocked him clean and then score. Maybe I'm getting the order backwards, but scored on him and blocked a shot of his. Um, and that was really a difference. Like down the stretch, MSU tried to drive inside, tried not to settle for threes, but Duke's rim protection just ate them. They couldn't do anything with it. Um, they're, they just weren't a good enough team to beat that kind of opponent this year, uh, unless Duke had had a serious off game. And they didn't. I mean, they didn't play their best, but they played well enough that even MSU's best game wasn't going to do it. What I have seen is some people in my fan base declare that the fact that they showed up and played a good game means that this program is actually healthy and everything is fine. And the haters need to, specifically like me, need to get back on board. Uh, nah, I ain't there, man. <laughs> Two games do not undo what we saw this season and what we saw last season. Um, I have expounded on those reasons at great length, and I got a postmortem to write where we'll go into it in more depth. But as much as I very much liked the effort that this team played with, there's still the fact that their best effort did not get them out of the round of 32. Um, and that now means that since 2015, they've escaped the second week to the second weekend of the tournament exactly once. That ain't good enough. Sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, right. sounds I understand. Awesome. Very, I very much understand these are first world problems, but I, in the back of my mind, the panic that Izzo was never going to win his second. Tr- I mean, I call it panic, but I came to this realization several years ago. Um, so it's it's there's a it's a weird balancing act, right, between playing out the string while understanding whatever comes next is very likely not going to be anywhere near as good. But then you think, well, this athletic director did replace Mark Antonio with Mel Tucker. Maybe he can do it again, but then you remember that's an impossible ask. Um, yeah. I don't, it's, it's a weird headspace to be in as far as this team goes, but I've never gotten over a tournament loss so quickly. I mean, last year, even as bad as the team was to lose in the fashion they did, I was pissed about that for three or four days. Um, but this weekend, um, yeah, I, I went out, did a couple, did some yard work and had almost forgotten they'd played. I'm still mad. Not about this year, about <laughs> last year. I never stopped being mad. Um, as for, I'm not the, mad. I'm just disappointed as for <laughs> escaping the second round. Like, you know, sure. It's disappointing to, you know, only hang two banners and then only have, you know, two round of 32s and also two banners to show for it. You know, whatever. If you told me three years ago that Michigan people would be dunking on us on Twitter being like, ha ha ha, only only um, you had all Americans and only made the round of 32 and also Bo did nothing wrong. Ha ha. Then I, my first question would be, wait, we had what? And we made the tournament. And my second question would be, wait, what's this about Bo? Yeah, well, it'd be why are we talking about Bo Ryan? But um, yeah, <laughs> Bo Ryan did plenty of things wrong. What are we talking about? Yeah, how can, how is that the thing that we disagree about? Um, all right, so we're we're at a point once again where selection Sunday occurs. The Big Ten has the most teams in the field of any conference by three. I think this time I don't think any other conference had more than six. And then we get to the second weekend, and now the Big Ten only has two. And that includes a couple of pretty nasty upsets. Not as bad as last year. Last year was worse because um, you had higher seeds losing. You had, I mean, a lot of it on the first day of the tournament, so there was more attention being paid. But still, even if Purdue or Michigan gets to the third weekend, kind of an underwhelming result for the conference as a whole once again. So given that the conference's last national tournament is now old enough to drink. No, we're not counting 2002 Maryland. Um, I guess it's fair to once again, ask the question, what are we doing wrong here? Not getting Michigan. I would love to answer. Draws. I would love to answer. Uh, the big 10 has been pretty close with a Trey Burke, Michigan team and the Frank Kaminsky, uh, Sam Decker, Wisconsin team. But for the most part, uh, their coaches, number one, don't know how to coach tournament games. I think that there's an art to it that I think Izzo actually does have, but for whatever reason, uh, he's just come up short a few times from 20 or some, from 2000 to 2012. Hasn't really had, in my opinion, that national championship team uh, 
for a while. But it's also oh. a program structure where the Big Ten relies so heavily on these big men. I mean, I said it in the in the tournament preview, and I'll say it again. The best guards in the tournament generally win, and that's full stop. Um, it's a little confusing to me that Johnny Davis and uh, uh, Keegan Murray, you know, went out when they did this year because they were actually pretty ball dominant. Yeah, but they went. Like they were a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, but they're not ones and twos. They're not bringing the ball down the floor every time. You know, um, I think that does matter. And you go up and down the Big Ten. None of the best players in the conference are guards. Period. And that's got to change. Well, I think that well, was the case. With I mean, like that. One of the teams had one of those last year, and that didn't help us get into Sweet Sixteen. I think it is worth noting that. But I've felt all year that Purdue is the team with the best chance in the conference to win the title. They are still alive, and Jaden Ivey is a big part of the reason for that. Um, to speak to the Izzo thing in particular, it it has happened that in a lot of the years when he has the good the caliber of teams where he could win it, that I mean, the last time they made the national title was 2009 when they ran into the buzzsaw North Carolina oh. team. Um, yeah. They've had other times, I mean, they ran into Shabazz Napier in 2014. Um, so they, they've had some bad luck, but it's also like we've been there enough times that honestly, I do wonder if sometimes the pressure of that last step gets to Izzo and gets the players. I don't know exactly what that is. Um, but we talk about national championships, like their conference championships, and just a whole bunch of people get them every year. And there's only one national champion. I mean, there's only been 20 yeah. in the past 20 years. I mean, it, it, it's a very difficult thing to do. Now, yeah, Jay Wright has a couple, but we're not all Jay Wright or Billy Donovan or whoever else has won more than one. And also, yeah, generally speaking, your odds of winning a title are much, much higher if your school has already won one. Baylor no. finally put an end to that streak last year, but it was the longest it had ever been. I can't stand Scott Drew. <laughs> you know what? They've had worse coaches at Baylor. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, they have. You're right. So there's a theory often voiced by our Iowan colleague, uh, Stu Monkey, who, as an Iowa fan, is an opponent of defense being played in basketball. And so he believes that, in a nutshell, because Big Ten officials permit more contact than he believes should be allowed, when we get to the Big Ten, when we get to the NCAA tournament, and you have refs from other conferences, the, the implication, I suppose, is our guys get in foul trouble much more often because they're not used to tighter whistles, and so we're at a disadvantage. Um, I think that's a position completely unsupported by evidence. Uh, I do not recall in any of the games I watched featuring Big Ten teams this year foul trouble being a debilitating issue. I mean, as I mentioned, Michigan State had extremely good foul luck against Davidson. Their best player sat 12 minutes of the first half, again, because of his coach's decision, but he picked up the second foul. And there, it was a legit foul call, but still, I, I don't recall it being an issue last year. It, I don't think that foul trouble specifically is a problem for the Big Ten. I, do th I think it's more the coaching thing that you touched on, Buff Komodo. I, I think yeah. so. there is a cadre of coaches who – Here's, here's what I think it is. The coaching thing, I think, is because to get a job in this league is basically the pinnacle of the sport or level with the pinnacle of the sport. It's the highest level. You get paid the most. The pressure is the highest to win enough games to keep your fans happy, to keep their butts in the seats during the season. So you do what you have to do to win in the Big Ten, which is not necessarily the same thing you have to do to prepare for March. And that's why... Again, even earlier this season, I was willing to shrug off some of the losses that Michigan State piled up because I'm like, this is how Izzo does it. He continues to tinker with his lineups. He wants to be sure that he knows who his best groups are and who can do what with complete certitude so that when he gets to the tournament, he knows what buttons will do what. Um, most other coaches don't do that. They play their best guys. They play short benches. And so when they get to the tournament, if one guy has foul trouble or one guy's having an off game, they don't have as many ways to work around it. Um, and it's not just one coach. I think there's several guys in this league. I think that's true of McCaffrey. I think that's true of Holtman. 
I think that's true of Greg Gard. I think it's becoming arguably true of Steve Peichel, who we've mostly been uh, very bullish on around here. And he's done a good job building Rutgers to what it is. But once you make the tournament every year, the expectation eventually becomes, all right, do something in the tournament. I can only speak for Illinois here because outside of the last, uh, you know, the reason they didn't do very much in the 2020 tournament was because it was canceled. Uh, everything before that that I've watched as a fan, the reason they haven't gone far is because they've been shitty. Um, the reason they didn't go far this year is because they turned the ball over 15 times a game. And if anything, the Big Ten should be embarrassed for letting them win the goddamn league, turning the ball over 15 times a game. And the reason they didn't do anything last year in the tournament was because Porter Moser made a deal with the devil. Remains to be seen. I mean, like I said, <laughs> Underwood changes his approach every season, basically, based on his personnel. So I don't know enough really to, to conclude that he can't. I mean, again, he's certainly not this Bill Belichick, I make a new game plan for every, you know, opponent thing. But like, who, who, literally, who is? Your source for Big Ten Talk, it's Off Tackle Empire.